Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but have you given me an open ear? Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought toward to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! But may, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, I'm Steve, one of the leaders here. We're continuing our series called Real Life. It is a walk through the Psalms, looking at how um, real people have dealt with real life issues and uh, have done it in faith. And, and that's really what the Psalms are about, is, is, is a glimpse into how we deal with some of the struggles of real life, the struggles, the pain, um, and honestly the suffering that, that we deal with on a regular basis. Last week we uh, dealt with Psalm um, 33 and opened this idea of, of waiting and how waiting is in itself a form of suffering. And Psalm 40, we're going to continue to unpack that this morning. Now before we get there, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Two announcements I want to highlight. These things are in your bulletins. Um, but I want you to take a look. The first is that we are going to have a members and regular attenders meeting um, on September 9th. It is a Sunday after the second service. It's, I think, two Sundays from now. Uh, if you call Trailhead home, if you've been here for two weeks and you expect to be here for two more um, or beyond, then, then you're invited to this. This is for those that, that this is where uh, your heart is as far as your church home. Uh, or you think that, that it may be. Uh, I want to open the door and invite you to this. We are going to be talking about a lot of things that are taking place uh, at Trailhead, things that are important to the development of uh, the current situation in our church, um, as well as exciting things God is, is bringing up. Um, we also want to engage and answer your questions. If you have any questions that you would like to see addressed at that meeting, um, I'm going to tell you to do two things. There's an announcement on the city um, and you can post your question on that announcement, or you can email me on the city, or just email me, okay, steve at trailheadonline.org. You can send me your question 
And um, I would love to make sure that we're addressing the things that you guys would like to see addressed at that meeting. Okay. The second thing is that we do have a membership class coming up. If you've been here, like I said, for two weeks and you plan to be here for two more, if this is where you're going to basically call home, this is your opportunity to put a ring on it, right? This is your chance to just basically say, I want to join the family, right? This is, this is um, where I want to be. I, I want to be part of this church. Uh, I want to tie myself to this church, and I want this church tied to me in, in a healthy way, a way of, of mutual understanding that we care for each other, we love for each other, we support each other. If you want to do that, your opportunity is coming up with the membership class. It starts um, Sunday, September uh, 16th. There are announcements, in, uh, excuse me, information in your bulletin, also information on the city. Uh, feel free to contact the email address in the bulletin if you have questions or whatever, but put that on your radar, okay, because that's... Um, that's kind of an important part of the pathway of becoming a member of Trailhead Church, which basically means officially joining the family. And I encourage you to do so if this is where you uh, call your church home. All right, Psalm 40. Oh, by the way, the heat. I apologize. I know it's warm in here. Um, I contacted uh, the landlord this week and asked them to turn on the air conditioner earlier so that the room would be cooler at the start of the day. Um, they said, no problem. And I think they may have pushed the wrong button and actually just completely turned it off. Um, so I apologize. We will get this corrected for next week. Um, I appreciate your willingness to suffer for Jesus today. All right. Um, in Psalm 40, we are talking, continue to talk about this idea of waiting as a form of suffering. How do we wait well? We hate to wait, <laughs> right? I mean, as a people, as a culture, we hate to wait. I mean, think about it. When you go to the grocery store and you got all your stuff and you go into the front of the store, you're looking at the lines. What are you looking for? The one that has the most entertaining magazine covers to stand next to and look at? No, you're looking for the shortest line. Why? Because if you get through faster, you win, right? You win. And so you're looking for the shortest line. You're not just looking for the shortest line. You're looking to see how many items people have in their carts. Like there might be three people in this line and four in this one, but there's, there's like 50 items in each of those carts. There's only like five in each of these. You're like, yeah. And then you mark it. You look, see who's like in line at the same time as you. And you know, like if you get done before them, you win, right? We hate waiting. We do. We try to avoid it in every form of life. The problem is a lot of our life is spent waiting. That's just the reality of it. And a lot of, a lot of times, we have to wait, not, not just in the grocery store, but in really painful situations. There are times that, that there are things that hurt in our lives, and the only solution we have is to wait. And sometimes that can be some of the most painful and difficult. That, you know, it's one thing when God tells me to go climb a mountain. It's another thing when he says, no, wait, Right? There's something that is just uniquely painful about having to sit in a situation that is uncomfortable, that hurts, that, that, that is painful in, in a multitude of ways. That's where David begins this psalm, you guys. David begins with this image of, of really quicksand. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. So we, we begin with this triumphant note in this psalm. Like I was stuck in a miry bog. You guys know what a miry bog is, right? 
anybody who's ever been hiking, right? Um, you like to go play in creeks. We, we enjoy doing that sometimes. Um, after a good rain, uh, go out behind SIUE to the woods, and, and there are these creeks back there that are just fun to climb through. The problem is every once in a while, you'll step on something that looks like relatively solid riverbank, you know what I'm talking about? And by the time you're done, you're like up to your hips in mud, right? And every time you move, it's just suction, right? By the time you get out of there, you left both your shoes at the bottom because it just sucked them right off your feet, right? Uh, That's a miry bog. It's incredibly difficult to walk in, incredibly difficult to move in. It, It makes everything more effort. And that's what waiting is like. And it gets even worse because some of those miry bogs are legitimately quicksand. That's a a real thing, right? If you get stuck in quicksand, how do you survive? I know most of you have like a zombie apocalypse survival plan. Let's let's go to something real, okay? Uh, You get stuck in quicksand. What what do you do, right? You guys ever play that survival game, right? The little card, you're stuck in quicksand. What do you do? Quick, what do you do? All right, you do the thing that seems absolutely least intuitive, you lay down. You lay down. Because quicksand, a miry bog, basically what you have is you have an aquifer, an under, underwater stream, and, and what it's doing is, is what you've just stepped in is about 60% water, 40% mud or, or sand. And, and the more you struggle, the more you just displace what little sand is holding you up. The more you thrash around in quicksand, the more you sink and the faster you sink, and the more stuck you become. The absolute safest thing and the least intuitive thing to do in quicksand is actually to lay down. Just lay on your back. Enjoy the sun, right? You're not going anywhere. Just lay down. But it makes no sense, right? It's like, are you kidding me? I want my face as far away from that stuff as possible. You know, I'm going to keep it up here, which means I'm going to stay, I'm going to fight. You guys, that, that is a great metaphor, for how painful and how hard it is to wait in suffering. The things that we want to do when we're suffering and we're having to wait in suffering usually make the problem worse. They usually cause us to sink more. They usually cause our anxiety to rise, our frustration to increase, our despair to grow. The very thing we need to do is the least intuitive thing, and that's honestly to rest. To rest. If we rest... Um, we're in the safest possible position. So what do I mean by that? How do we unpack this a little bit? Well, let's unpack the metaphor first of all as we look at this and, and, and do that by, by looking specifically at the issue of waiting. In verse one, where it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Um, I wish I could claim that that describes me. <laughs> it doesn't. I don't know that it describes a lot of people, to tell you the truth. I waited patiently, right? We all have to wait, right? It doesn't matter whether you wait patiently or impatiently. It doesn't change how long you have to wait or the nature of your wait, but very few of us actually know how to wait patiently, right? What does it mean to wait patiently, right? We all have to wait. In fact, I love the Hebrew. In in the original, it says, waiting, I waited. Waiting, I waited for the Lord. And I think that kind of tells us something about what it means to wait patiently. It is something we do and we keep doing. See, a lot of us lo- would love it if, if, if waiting was something we could just put on our checklist and we could do it and then we could be done. You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, the Lord's asking me to wait. Okay, put it on my checklist. I did it. Now I'm done, right? I no longer have to wait. The problem is with this item on your checklist, every time you check it off, it just pops right back up. 
right? Oh, I'm done. No, there it is again. Waiting, I waited, right? It's this sense of just having to wait and wait and wait. You ever prayed for patience? You think that's a good idea? Do you know how you grow in patience? You grow in the ability to put up with things that frustrate and infuriate you. If you pray for patience, you're praying for God to drive you crazy. Literally. Because there's only one way to learn patience. And that is actually to grow in the strength of patience. There's only one way to learn how to wait. And that's to wait. Because in that process, you guys, think of it as as somebody who's enduring under a great weight. There's only one way to learn how to endure, and that's to endure. Because by enduring, you're building the very muscles you need to endure. And so what seems overwhelmingly heavy in the beginning becomes less and less overwhelmingly heavy through the process of simply being under the weight. You want to know what it means to wait patiently? It means to learn how to wait. Waiting, I waited. And what that means is that waiting is not a passive activity. It's an active activity. See, one of the things that drives us crazy about waiting is we feel like we're wasting time. We are a time-driven, accomplishment-driven culture. And we have all these things on our checklist. That's why we hate waiting in the grocery store, right? We got 15 things we have still to do. And here I am standing in line behind Slow Lady, right? We don't like that. And yet, there are things that are going to be done in us through the process of waiting that can't be done in us any other way. There are, there are muscles that will be strengthened. There is, there is something that will increase our faith in ways that simply can't be done, right? Some guys are like, man, tell me to climb the mountain. I will suffer. I will fight. I will have frostbite. I will lose my toes, but I will get to the top, right? But if you tell those same guys, no, I want you to camp at the base and just look at it every day and not go. That is a more extreme form of suffering for them than actually fighting through it. But yet there's something God develops in us in that process of waiting. And here's the deal, you guys. Waiting gets harder and harder the more it hurts, right? There are certain forms of waiting that are just irritating. But there are other forms of waiting that genuinely hurt. Because we're, we're waiting while somebody persecutes us, somebody is hurting us, we're under financial stress, we're under relational tension, we're waiting in this place that hurts, and it feels like every time we do anything, it just makes the problem worse. We're just sinking in the quicksand. Waiting is the very thing we need to learn how to do well during those seasons if we're going to be able to not sink, which means waiting is going to be some of the hardest work we ever do. What I love about this psalm is that all the way through, it's a psalm of tension. It begins as a psalm of deliverance, right? Those first couple of verses we read, man, God delivered me, took me out of the miry pit and put me on a a solid rock. That's the part of the story we love, (laughs) right? We love to be able to look back at all the suffering we've had and look, look, I came through victoriously. It was awesome, right? The problem is you're never going to get out of the mud until Jesus comes back. I haven't figured that out yet. You're going to be delivered from one problem to another, from one form of suffering to the next, from one form of waiting to the next. You're like, Steve, man, that's a total downer. That's just life. It doesn't mean there's not joy in it. And some of the waiting is way less painful than other forms of waiting. But until Jesus comes back, man, we're waiting for him to restore everything. And until he restores everything, we live in a broken world. 
And we're broken ourselves. And as a result, there's a sense of tension, tension. And we see that in the psalm, right? It begins as a psalm of deliverance. But, but look down at verses um, 12 and 13. Listen to, his, listen to him when he says this. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I can't see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Is he out of the pit? Or is he in the pit? Has he been delivered to the rock? Or is, or is he still struggling in the quicksand? The answer is yes. It's both. Because the way God delivers us is not the way we expect to be delivered. The way God frees us is often not the way we're looking to God to free us. What he does will be better. What he does will be more freeing. What he does will, in fact, produce greater joy and blessing in our lives, but it's not intuitive. It's not intuitive because what he does first is change us before he frees us. His greatest blessings will come not in his changing our life circumstances, but changing us in our life circumstances. And so we have small deliverances, small victories, more waiting. The key to deliverance, you guys, the key to waiting well, listen to this, is that we need to learn how to stop thrashing and how to start resting. We need to learn how to stop thrashing against the pain of the waiting and learn how to start resting. Because we're either going to thrash about in our lack of faith or we're going to learn to rest in faith, right? You're either going to be fighting in the quicksand, making the problem worse, or you're going to learn to just lay back and trust and trust. So, so how do we fight in unhealthy ways? What ways can we identify that we thrash that ultimately make the problem worse? And as we unpack Psalm 40, I think we're going to see some of this. First of all, take a look at verses four and five. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Hmm. Those are the words of somebody resting in God's power. Those are the words of somebody. These aren't just like, like, these are the things I'm supposed to say. These are the things that I need to say. This is an overflow of a heart of somebody who, who is delighting in the fact that God has it. He's got it under control. He's bigger. He's stronger, right? See, we make a problem when we doubt that God is good and in control. And a lot of us, honestly, um, we make a habit of it. You guys, listen to me. We need to stop thrashing and doubting God's character. There are some folks that I meet with. Every time something painful or uncomfortable comes into their life, the first place they go, I just don't know if God's a good God. I, I just don't know if I can trust him. Right? Every time something uncomfortable, painful comes into their lives, the first thing they want to do is, is just question the character of God. They are thrashing in doubt about God's character, the, the fact that he is good and that he is in control. You guys, here's the reality of it. God has demonstrated his character to us, clearly, right? We know his character by the way he's already behaved toward us. How has he behaved toward us? Well, first of all, he created us in his image so that we could experience his glory and ultimately share his good. 
He allowed us to rebel against him without destroying us. He allowed us to introduce this thing called sin into the world, which is this thing where we are trying to dethrone God, make ourselves the center of the universe. And he was willing to allow that to come in because he was unwilling to let his glory go. He wasn't simply going to judge us. Instead, he was going to enter into our rebellion by becoming one of us and suffering its penalty in our place. When you look at the person of Christ, what greater demonstration can you have of a God who is both good and in control? That, that he sent a savior, that, that God became man and became one of us so that ultimately he could suffer in our place as our substitute, bear the penalty we deserve, fully satisfy God in regard to justice, and then ultimately rise again in victory, not just his, but ours. You guys, all we have to do is look back to give us hope looking forward. It's an issue of trust. It's not an issue of of, of, of how has, is God trustworthy? It's an issue of who we choose to trust. God has demonstrated his character in his actions. The question is who you're going to trust. In verse 4, it says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. We are either going to turn to the truth and preach that truth to our hearts, or we're going to turn to a lie and preach that lie to our hearts. It's one or the other. In the middle of suffering, what you need to realize is that everything in you emotionally is screaming out and saying, this is unsafe, this is not okay. And emotionally, you're going to be thrashing about. The question is, are you going to be led by your emotions or are you going to lead your emotions? Are you going to simply respond to your emotions and say, I'm in distress, therefore God is not trustworthy? Or are you going to say, I'm in distress, but I know God is trustworthy in spite of how hard this is right now? Because you're going to ultimately trust either God or yourself. God's presentation of who he is and why you're suffering where you are or your understanding of how things are. You guys, listen to me. If you find yourself chronically questioning the character of God, every time you find yourself in a position of suffering, you are questioning whether God is good and in control. If you find yourself in that position, you don't trust God. You are using God. What you're really questioning is not whether or not God is good, but whether or not God is going to do what you want him to do. And you get ticked at God every time he doesn't do what you want him to do. He doesn't let the, the story play out the way you think it's supposed to play out. You, your will, your plan, your whatever it is, he's just not playing by your rules. And every time he doesn't play by your rules, you get mad at him. And as a result, you question his character and his power. You don't trust him, you're using him. And when he doesn't play by your rules, you get angry at him. You need to remind yourself. You need to remind yourself that you are not trustworthy. That your plan, ultimately, if you were to follow it, would lead to your self-destruction. He has a better plan for you. And even though his plan is often difficult and involves suffering at points, his plan is ultimately a plan to release his glory in your life for your good. And we know that that is a good plan because he's already demonstrated his love for us. How do we know he's trustworthy? Because he's given us the ultimate demonstration of love. He did not stand apart from our rebellion, apart from our suffering, and simply shake his head and distance himself from us. He entered into it. He became one of us and died the death we deserve to die so that we could get the life that we could never earn to live. He has demonstrated himself to be ultimately trustworthy. We simply need to look and see that he has demonstrated his character in the past to lead our hearts to trust his character in the present. Instead of trying to manipulate God, 
See, what's going to happen, you guys, if we don't treat, preach this truth to our own hearts, if, if we don't center ourselves on the fact that God is good and in control, we're going to find ourselves thrashing about against God's character. And, and one of the ways that's going to manifest itself is we're going to thrash about trying to earn from God what he's already given us. We're going to end up trying to earn from God what he has already freely given us. Take a look at verses 6 through 11. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance to the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. One of the ways that we thrash in unbelief, one of the ways we make our problem worse, is ultimately we doubt that God loves us. Um, and we try to earn what he's already given. You know, a lot of people, when they think of God, they, they, they picture a, a cold and distant father. Somebody who's looking at us and waiting for us to earn his approval. Somebody who's just kind of sitting back and saying, man, what are you going to get your act together? It's not that hard. When are you going to measure up? Maybe there's some warmth. Maybe there's some affection. But when we look at God, what we see is this father figure that ultimately is saying, when you measure up, then I will love you. When you measure up, then my affection will be on you. When you finally get it together and you earn my approval, it'll be good. We think of God as distant, cold, or hostile. And ultimately, we think that we can just, if we can just push the right buttons, we'll get them to like us. There's nothing like suffering that often triggers this form of thrashing in our lives. Because our brain will automatically go to this thing. Man, I'm suffering right now. God must be angry at me. Things aren't going well in my life right now. God must not be pleased with me. I'll sit down with people, again, counseling, and, and sit across from them. And a lot of times I'm like, well, what, what, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going on. And, and a lot of times they come right to the table. I'm like, I already know the solution, man. I, I just, I need, to, I need to have a quiet time. I need to get back in my Bible. I need to start going to church, right? I need to make time for God. <laughs> you realize the irony? You're going to make time for the God who created time, right? Really? You're going to make time for God? Do you realize what you're saying when you say that? What you're saying is, I'm going to start doing the right things, and then God will like me again. I'm going to start performing in the right ways, and then he'll accept me again. Yeah, I'm distant from God right now because I just haven't been doing all the right things. You guys, that is thrashing about in unbelief with this idea that if I can just make the right sacrifice, do the right things, perform in the right ways, then he'll stop being mad, then he'll like me, then, then things will be fixed. You guys, listen to what David says. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Do you catch what he's saying in that? We don't earn God's open ear through our sacrifices. If I just do these things, then God will listen to me. If I just perform in these ways, then God will approve of me. It's not the way it works. 
in sacrifice and offering. You have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. You guys, listen to me. When Christ came as your sacrifice, he ultimately is the only sacrifice you need. In the Old Testament, did the Jews have to bring sacrifices in order to approach God at the temple? Yes, they did. But it wasn't to earn God's favor. That was ultimately pointing us forward to how God was ultimately going to earn favor for us in a way we could never do for ourselves. Those sacrifices were never meant to become things that people looked to and said, look, I am now righteous because I sacrificed this animal. They were things that pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice, that ultimately God was going to satisfy himself on your behalf, that he sent his son to be the ultimate sacrifice, to bear the ultimate penalty for you. You guys, this is the real point of how to wait without trying to earn is realizing that, that God's not waiting for you to impress him. He's already impressed in Christ. He's not waiting, you to, waiting for you to perform for him. He, Christ already performed on your behalf. Do you realize how radically freeing this is? What radically good news this is? God is not waiting for you. <laughs> Christ has already done for you what you could never do for yourself. He has already earned a level of acceptance with God on your behalf because if you have faith in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Christ. How satisfied is he in Christ? Absolutely and fully. His, all of his delight rests in his son. And if you're in his son, all of his delight rests on you. Yeah, but I don't feel like I deserve it. You're right, you don't. None of us do. That's why it's called grace. That is the good news of the gospel. Not that you've suddenly become good enough to deserve it, because if you had to deserve it, you never would. <laughs> when suffering comes into your life, you are going to be tempted to go back to that place where you feel like you need to do Jesus' job for him. I need to satisfy God. I need to impress God. I need to earn God's favor. And then I can push the magic button to make this suffering go away. That is unbelief. It's a lie. And as you thrash in that, you only make the problem worse. What you need to do in that moment is not thrash in unbelief, but rest in truth. What's the truth you need to rest in? That you are completely and totally, completely, unconditionally, absolutely, forever accepted and loved by God because of the work of Christ. God delights in you. And your suffering is not a form of punishment. It may be a form of correction, but it's not a form of punishment, right? I want you to catch the difference. Sometimes we unleash suffering in our own lives. We'll do something stupid, and as a result, there's a consequence that comes to us. We did it to ourselves, and we know that. But, but, Allowing that consequence to come into our lives is not God's form of condemnation or punishment. It is his form of correction. It's him basically saying, I'm going to allow you to suffer as a result of your bad choices because I'm going to change you. Not just your behavior, but you. I'm not just going to get you to do the right things. I'm going to get you to, to, to delight in the right things. I'm going to free you by changing your heart and not just your behavior. And that's why we can celebrate, even in our suffering, that God loves us and is changing us for his glory. We need to thrash, not in unbelief, but in belief. Rest in the faith that, that God loves us. 
Hebrews um, 10, 5 through 7 actually quote this passage in, in verses um, 8 and 9 and 10. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that those verses are telling us about Jesus. Listen to what it says. I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws within my heart. And I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Our deliverance. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Jesus is, is God's word to us of love and acceptance. That we deserve judgment because of our sin. We deserve to be crushed because of our rebellion. But he loves us enough to crush his son in our place. That is his word to us. Not struggle to be approved, but rest in the fact that Christ was crushed on your behalf so you could be approved. Stop fighting for what God freely gives. Stop trying to earn what you can only receive through grace, and that is that acceptance, resting that he ultimately is the one that earns for us what we can't earn for ourselves. And as we remind ourselves of this, it's going to renew our hope. And that's going to embolden us, not to make us passive, but to make us very active in our waiting. And, and that's where this, this psalm goes, because we see this transition now in, in verses 11 through 17, where the psalm transitions from, from a psalm of praise for deliverance to a psalm of pleading for deliverance. He goes from praising God to pleading with God. And I think this is actually the normal outgrowth of faith. When we learn to rest well in God, we learn to plead well with God. The problem is we often doubt that God wants to deliver us. We doubt the character of God. I mean, just jumping down to verse 13, it says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Some people hide their despair um, behind hyper-spirituality. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that some people get too spiritual for their own good. It's a fake spirituality. What they're hiding is really the despair of their hearts. I mean, you see this like on Facebook sometimes, on Pinterest, this little phrase. It says, don't pray for deliverance, pray for endurance. That sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? That just sounds wonderful. Don't, don't, that's, that's like, oh, I'm spiritual enough not to pray for deliverance. I'm going to pray for endurance. And there are times, honestly, that is probably the best advice you can have. There are certain forms of struggle. Um, you shouldn't pray for deliverance. You should pray for endurance, right? If you're a young man and, and you yearn to be married one day, but you know that you don't have the maturity or the wherewithal, or God just hasn't brought you to that place, do you want to be delivered from your desires for marriage? Really? Yeah, God, you want God to make you celibate? I don't think so, right? There are certain forms of waiting that are good, right? We need to learn to, to endure, right? So pray for endurance, not deliverance. That, that's okay in that situation. But honestly, there are a lot of other things that honestly we should be praying for deliverance and we're not. And you know why? It's because we don't trust God. We've given up hope that God can actually or will change the situation. We're masking our despair behind this sense of hyper-spirituality. Well, this is just my lot in life. Obviously, God just, just wants me to suffer 
in this way. You know what, guys? Pray for endurance, but pray for deliverance too. Genuine faith makes us bold in our pleading. Do you get that? Genuine faith makes us bold in our pleading. And let me show you why. In verses 11 and 12, I think we find the heart of the tension of this psalm. In verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Those are bold statements. Those are bold statements. Can you say those statements? Seriously. Like, do you have a faith that says, God is for me. You, O Lord, will not restrain your mercy from me. The God of the universe The God of the universe looks at me and will not restrain his mercy. In other words, he will not judge me. He will not separate himself from me. He will never shake his head and distance himself from me. He will never get so disapproval of me or or, just brush me off. He, he, He is in a position of blessing toward me. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love, unchanging, unbreakable, forever love, and your faithfulness, Your faithfulness toward me, not my faithfulness toward you, your faithfulness toward me will ever preserve me. That's a bold statement of faith that goes right into verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. This is the tension at the heart of this psalm and the tension that I think we need to learn to move into. If we're going to learn how to wait well, we need to learn how to hurt and hope. Not one or the other, both. We're going to have to learn to have both faith and learn how to experience frustration simultaneously. And not allow the frustration to undercut our faith. We're going to be free to see things as they actually are but not despair. I love the, you guys look at verse 12, the first part. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. There are people out there that, are, that have harm for me, that, that want to attack me, that want to undermine me. They, they want to, it could be, who knows? It, this could be personal, a family member or a coworker, somebody at school. Uh, it could be financial, just pressures of, of unfair economic things that are coming in and completely undercutting your security. I don't know what they are, but things from the outside. The next part, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. That's internal. Because there are, there are people here who have been struggling with sin, personal sin. For so long, they have honestly given up on having any kind of victory. Whether it's lust or anxiety or fear, they've just despaired of actually being delivered. My iniquities have overtaken me. And what's so insidious about that is a lot of times we suffer in that one in silence because we allow the shame of our failure to keep it hidden. Now, what we subtly hear in the back of our mind is God doesn't love me because I don't measure up. God doesn't approve of me because I have sinned. God does not want to deliver me because he knows I'm a hypocrite. And we keep that hidden. You guys realize what foolishness that is? You think Christ didn't die for your hidden sins? You think he didn't suffer the condemnation for the ones you're afraid to name? Do you get how radical, free, and universal your forgiveness is? That's the only thing that will ultimately give you the the boldness of faith to actually acknowledge your hidden sin and allow him to deliver you from it. 
Some of you are enslaved to it very simply because you won't even look at it. You're so afraid to look at it because you don't want to feel the rejection of God. And because of that, you you just keep it locked away and it keeps you enslaved. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. That is the gospel of hope. You are accepted not because of your performance for God, but because of his performance on your behalf. This is an invitation to bold faith in the face of all forms of suffering, which will result in bold pleading for deliverance. If God is for me and his face is toward me in blessing and he will ultimately deliver me, which he will, we know the end of the story. The end of the story, God's going to set all things right. It's a story of redemption and restoration. If you have faith in Christ, you are part of the bride of Christ. He will cleanse you and perfect you. He will sit down with you. Do you I, there's going to be a meal, you guys. Jesus said, I'm not going to eat the bread or drink the wine until I come back. When he comes back, we're going to have a feast. And you're going to have a seat at that table, not because you earned it, but because he earned it for you. As a follower of Christ, your story is a story of redemption and restoration. You will be delivered. And if we believe, why aren't we asking for deliverance now? Why are we so timid in our faith? Why aren't we bold? Why can't we rest knowing we're absolutely secure in the work of Christ, but also rest in the boldness that allows us to boldly come to the one who can fix all of our problems and ask him to do so? James tells us, and he's talking about prayer, that you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. Some of you have allowed your thrashing and unbelief to hinder your ability to even come and ask. You need to be bold, even in your asking. And that's what, that's what David does. Verse 14, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. He's not pleading for personal vengeance. He is pleading for personal deliverance. And ultimately he is pleading that God will establish his glory and that all those who follow Christ will enjoy the full benefit of the glory of Christ. That's what he's pleading for. And this leads us to bold waiting and bold asking. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy. <laughs> my confidence isn't in my ability, my performance, my whatever. I'm poor and needy. I got nothing. But the Lord takes thought of me. <laughs> the Lord thinks of me fondly. The Lord looks at me and loves me. The Lord's affection is set on me because of the work of Christ. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. He moves from a confident rest in the work of Christ to a bold asking for deliverance, knowing that God's the one that can do it. My kids and I watched a TV series together called The Band of Brothers. Some of you have probably seen it. Um, it, It follows a group of soldiers after D Day. And um, a lot of leadership lessons, um, a lot of incredible lessons as you just see these guys fighting in the trenches and, and learning how to lead themselves and each other. There was one scene that, that struck me um, and stuck with me. And, and that was this scene where these guys are in this really intense firefight. And one of the guys 
is curled up in a foxhole in a fetal position. So filled with fear, not only can he not engage the battle, he can't respond to orders. He can't even protect himself. I mean, he is just undone by fear. There's another guy that's just basically hopping from foxhole to foxhole, running. There's bullets flying. There's bombs going off. He's just running all around. And, and, and he's like almost recklessly bold. And he ends up having a conversation with this guy who's so filled with fear. And he looks at him and he says to him, basically, <laughs> you know what your problem is? You, you hope to live. You expect to get out of this alive. None of us are getting out of this alive. And because he didn't expect to get out alive, it gave him a boldness in his life. The guy in the foxhole was actually handicapped by the very thing he set his hope on. And the guy that, that gave in to despair and basically said, I have no hope of life, was actually the boldest one on the battlefield. And in many ways, um, was much safer than the guy locked up in fear. All right, <laughs> I'm not telling you to despair. I'm telling you this. If despair can give us that kind of boldness, how much more boldness can hope give us? How much more powerful a motivation is hope? Despair basically means, okay, I'm just going to die. So I might as well stop fighting. And I just give in to it. There's no joy in that. There's simply quiet resignation. Maybe a certain emotional catharsis because you're stop, you know, fighting for something you don't think you're going to get. How much better is hope? Because hope fills you with joy in the middle of the struggle. You guys get that the battle's already won? We already have a champion? Our redemption and restoration has already been achieved on our behalf? We should be living as those people who have that kind of bold faith. Here's the deal, you guys. We get disappointed and we get frustrated with God and we set our hope on the wrong things. See, my hope isn't in living. That, that hasn't worked for anybody yet. I don't know if you figured that out yet right? Nobody gets out of this thing alive, right? We all know that, that, that there are struggles and there are pains and ultimately there's going to be death, right? My hope isn't that, that I'm going to be the exception. <laughs> My hope is that Christ is the exception and he's going to be in, invite me into his victory. My hope isn't that I'm going to tell a great story for my life and I sure hope it all works out according to my plan. My hope is that God has a great story for my life and it's all going to work out according to his plan. My hope ultimately isn't for my glory and my victory. It is for God's glory and that when he gets his glory, I'll get my joy. When you can rest in that, you can rest in the waiting. You can rest in the pain because he is greater than your circumstances and he's working all the circumstances together ultimately for his glory and our good. Hope is the thing that ultimately frees us to wait well. It gives us a boldness that allows us to rest in the middle of suffering and the boldness to come to the throne of grace and plead with the God of grace that he might deliver us. But our hope isn't set on our temporal deliverance. Our hope is set on our ultimate deliverance, which comes in the revelation of the glory of God in all things. And sometimes God is glorified as we learn through suffering how to glorify him. That's a painful message. It's a hard message. But I'm telling you, it's a freeing message. It's a freeing message because ultimately it frees us to lean back and stop fighting. To stop fighting for the wrong things, God's approval, God's love, control over God. We, we can just rest in all the right ways. 
but it also allows us to engage and be active in all the right ways. To not simply be passive about life, but to engage knowing that we have a God who ultimately is going to change things and allows us to plead with Him boldly that He might engage where we are and meet us in our need.